0: Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Functional recovery rates among individuals with psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia need to be improved substantially. Although a number of innovative and integrated first-episode programs have been implemented around the world, there are very few prospective, randomized, controlled trials comparing a multimodal, multidisciplinary team approach to usual care. The National Institute of Mental Health Recovery, after an initial episode of schizophrenia, or RAISE, early treatment program, proposes that cutting-edge psychopharmacologic and psychosocial treatments delivered by a well-trained team can significantly improve functional outcome and quality of life in first-episode psychosis patients as compared with usual care. The authors have designed a multimodal treatment intervention that can be delivered in real-world clinical settings. They have implemented a controlled clinical trial that can provide the necessary outcome data to determine its impact on the trajectory of early-phase schizophrenia. Eligible participants included patients who were 15 to 40 years of age with a first episode of schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, schizophreniform disorder, psychotic disorder not otherwise specified or brief psychotic disorder, according to DSM-IV, and who had received antipsychotic medication treatment for no more than six months. Thirty-four clinical sites in 21 states are currently participating in the trial and were randomized by site to deliver the enhanced intervention or usual care. Four hundred and four subjects were enrolled. Patients will be followed for a minimum of two years. The goal of this report is to describe the overall background and rationale for the study and its design. The results are not yet available, but will be published subsequently. Mental disorders are one of the main risk factors for suicidal acts. However, more than 90% of individuals with mental disorders will never commit suicide. The authors of this article emphasize that more specific factors are needed to explain why some individuals commit suicidal acts during the acute phase of a mental disorder. In their article, they proposed that insight into mental disorders could be a vulnerability factor enabling suicidal acts. They explored this question through a review of the literature, a cross-sectional study, and a meta-analysis. Their study was supported by the Poitiers University and Canadian Institutes of Health Research. The review uncovered 32 studies, 25 of which were conducted on psychotic disorders. For both psychotic and mood disorders, a small majority of these studies showed a significant association between one measure of insight and higher risk of suicidal ideas or acts. Results from cross-sectional analysis found that suicide attempters, mostly females, tended to have better insight into depression than patient controls when measured against one insight scale. However, another comparable insight scale did not show the same result. Finally, the meta-analysis of seven studies confirmed significantly better insight scores in suicide attempters, though the effect size for this result was small. The authors conclude that overall, a significant but weak association was found between insight and the risk of suicidal behavior. They also raise methodological and conceptual concerns and discuss new measures to consider. Research has increasingly shown that cognitive deficits in patients with bipolar disorder need to be directly targeted with treatment. However, clinical trials focusing on cognition in bipolar disorder will be met with several methodological challenges. These challenges are inherent to the complexity of the disorder, including significant diagnostic comorbidities, the episodic nature of the illness, and frequent use of polypharmacy. Guidelines for use in designing future trials are needed. In this article, four experts in the field of bipolar disorder have developed a consensus statement in which they review the literature to identify methodological challenges specific to the disorder. They also provide expert opinion for the consensus recommendations. Among these recommendations, the authors suggest that when conducting cognitive trials in patients with bipolar disorder, investigators consider excluding certain syndromal-level comorbid diagnoses, such as active substance use disorders. In addition, they suggest that effectively stable patients be preferentially enrolled. Doing this would allow researchers to control for the effects of acute affective symptoms on cognition, as well as to more clearly interpret a positive or a negative trial outcome. Despite a clear pressing clinical need for improving cognition in major psychiatric disorders, Clinical trials to address cognitive deficits in bipolar disorder face distinctive design challenges. The authors conclude that lessons learned in the research arena can translate directly to patient care, with the ultimate goal of developing new agents to combat this disabling aspect of the illness. Bipolar mania is associated with a broad range of symptoms, including agitation, aggression, sleep disturbances, and cognitive impairment. Caraprazine is a dopamine D3 and D2 receptor partial agonist with preferential binding to D3 receptors. Compounds with activity at both D2 and D3 receptors may present novel targets for the treatment of symptoms associated with manic and mixed episodes. A placebo-controlled study sponsored by Forrest and Gideon Richter evaluated the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of three weeks of double-blind treatment with caraprazine at doses of either 3 to 6 milligrams per day or 6 to 12 milligrams per day. The primary outcome was change in mania symptom severity on the Young Mania Rating Scale. Statistically significant improvement versus placebo was seen in both dose groups on Young Mania Rating Scale and clinical global impression severity of illness scores. Both caraprazine groups were also statistically significantly superior to placebo on all 11 symptom domains of the Young Mania rating scale. Additionally, a significantly greater percentage of caraprazine-treated patients achieved remission. Caraprazine was generally well tolerated, although the incidence of akathisia was greater with caraprazine than placebo. These results suggest that caraprazine may be an effective new option for treating bipolar one disorder. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. The next study examined the prevalence and correlates of attempting suicide in the past year among adults in the United States who experienced suicidal ideation within that year. Data were assessed from nearly 230,000 adults who participated in the 2008 to 2012 National Survey on Drug Use and Health that was conducted by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The authors found that among persons aged 18 years or older, 3.8% reported having suicidal ideation in the past year. Among these suicidal ideators, 13.2% attempted suicide in the past year. The prevalence of suicide attempt within the past 12 months was higher among past-year ideators with major depressive episode than among those without major depressive episode. Also, suicide attempt in the past year was more common among ideators with a plan than among those without a plan. However, the prevalence of suicide attempt was higher among ideators with a plan but without major depressive episode than among those with both a plan and major depressive episode. After controlling for potential confounding factors, This study consistently found that ideators with a plan but without major depressive episode were more likely to attempt suicide than ideators with both a plan and major depressive episode. The authors conclude that among adult suicide ideators, factors associated with their progression from ideation to suicide attempt may vary by their suicide plan and major depression status. Absent of major depression should not be mistaken for the absence of suicide risk. Suicide prevention efforts need to target non-depressed ideators who have a suicide plan. The next article represents the first comprehensive moderator analysis for the Coordinated Anxiety Learning and Management Trial, known as COM, that was supported by the National Institute of mental health. The authors examine baseline characteristics associated with response and remission through traditional regression techniques and through receiver operating characteristic analysis. The latter analysis is a promising novel approach that uses a set of a priori defined predictor variables to identify subgroups with differential prognosis. This research is of significant clinical importance because it uses multiple methods of moderator analysis to uncover patients' characteristics at baseline that are associated with poor treatment outcome. Comorbid depression, increased severity of underlying anxiety disorders, low perceived and actual socioeconomic status, and limited social support were associated with poor treatment outcomes across treatment interventions. Additionally, the study identified patient characteristics that are associated with particular benefit from the collaborative care intervention utilized in the COM trial. Female patients, patients with increased baseline depression and severity of generalized anxiety disorder and those of low socioeconomic status, derive decided benefit from this treatment intervention. The authors point to the need for future research on the collaborative care intervention in community care centers, where its use may greatly benefit patients. Among the lay public, professionals, and the media, there is the impression that ADHD has been increasing in the general population. Explanations center on the potential of overdiagnosis, a more narrow construct of normality, and a smaller gap between those in need of treatment and those who get treatment. However, an empirical foundation for these assumptions is lacking. The aim of the present study was to analyze time trends in the incidence of diagnosed ADHD and to identify potential contributing factors. The study drew data from the Danish Nationwide Psychiatry Registry for years 1995 to 2010 and included those ranging in age from 4 to 65 years. The analysis was done by calculating the incidence of first-time ICD-10-diagnosed ADHD in Danish psychiatric hospitals per 100,000 person-years. A total of 20,281 patients were diagnosed with ADHD, which equated to a 12.5-fold increase in the incidence of ADHD in the total study population, During the study period, contributing factors to the observed time trends were related to a general increase in patients seen in psychiatry for any mental disorder and an increased awareness and recognition of ADHD in females, adolescents, and adults. Since ADHD is a relatively recent diagnosis in the psychiatric nosology, and the social awareness of ADHD in both sexes and across the lifespan has also developed only in the most recent past, such changes must be expected and interpreted with care. The conclusion that the true number of individuals with ADHD has increased is premature. Suicide is a tragic outcome and a serious public health problem. While studying suicide itself is inherently difficult, studying suicidal behavior is more feasible. In this web-based study of nearly 50,000 Brazilian subjects, the authors aimed to characterize risk factors of suicidal behavior. Subjects were classified as having had no thoughts of suicide, a passing thought a non-serious thought, a serious thought, a plan without an attempt, an attempt without really willing to die, or an attempt with intent to die. Results show that more than 60% of this general population sample reported having had at least a passing thought of killing themselves, and that 7% of subjects had previously attempted suicide. Among the suicide attempters, 64% did it impulsively, 14% had a plan, and 22% had tried both ways. However, those with a plan more frequently meant to die. The risk of attempting suicide was higher for females, those with low education, those unable to work, those with no religion, and only for females, those who were married or divorced. Interestingly, a family history of a suicide attempt and of a completed suicide showed the same increment in the risk of suicidal behavior. Also, the higher the number of suicide attempts, the higher was the real intention to die. Emptiness, loneliness, disconnectedness, and hopelessness were associated with the intention to die, but the method used was not. The authors conclude that assessing suicidal thoughts and plans is important, but unfortunately does not capture those who do it impulsively, which are the majority of cases. They also suggest paying close attention to those patients with more previous suicide attempts and a positive family history, even for a non-completed suicide. Major depressive disorder is a chronic, potentially disabling medical illness. Because treatment options for depression have remained largely unchanged over the last several decades, the discovery of new, more effective treatments with novel mechanisms of action is a major goal in psychiatry. Towards this end, a series of studies suggest that the glutamate, NMDA receptor antagonist ketamine, has rapid antidepressant effects. The safety and tolerability of ketamine in depressed patients constitute an important topic that has received only limited attention to date. In the current study, the authors conducted a patient-level safety analysis that included 205 ketamine infusions across three separate clinical trials and two academic medical centers. The authors found that the overall study dropout rate for patients who received ketamine was 3.1%. The most commonly reported adverse events immediately following treatment administration were drowsiness, dizziness, poor coordination, blurred vision, and feeling strange or unreal. An increase in blood pressure was frequently observed. Ketamine resulted in small but statistically significant increases in psychotomimetic and disassociative symptoms, which resolved within hours of treatment. There were no cases of persistent psychotomimetic effects, adverse medical effects, or increased substance use in a subgroup of patients with long-term follow-up information. This review suggests that ketamine is safe and well-tolerated in depressed patients in the short term within the context of a clinical trial. Much more research regarding the safety of ketamine for depression will be required before the therapy can be recommended for wider clinical use. This study received funding through grants from the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. Patients with schizoaffective disorder experience significant functional impairment and high rates of hospitalization, suicide, and substance abuse. Complex treatment regimens are often used to manage the symptoms experienced by these patients. However, treatment adherence is often inadequate, and this factor contributes to poor clinical outcomes. A randomized, placebo-controlled study funded by Janssen examined whether paliperidone palmitate, a once-monthly, long-acting injectable antipsychotic treatment, can be used as monotherapy or adjunctive therapy to provide maintenance efficacy for the psychotic, manic, and depressive mood symptom domains of schizoaffective disorder. A six-month open-label treatment phase was followed by a 15-month double-blind relapse prevention phase. Paliperidome monthly significantly delayed time to relapse compared with placebo, and the relapse risk was 2.49-fold higher for placebo. When given as monotherapy, the relapse risk was 3.38-fold higher for placebo. And when given adjunctively to antidepressants or mood stabilizers, the relapse risk was 2.03 times higher. In addition, paliperidone monthly was superior to placebo in maintaining patient functioning on a scale assessing personal and social relationships, self-care, and disturbing or aggressive behaviors. Adverse events were similar to those reported in previous studies of paliperidone monthly in schizophrenia. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Major depression with manic or hypomanic symptoms is commonly called mixed depression and is frequently observed in clinical practice. Compared with depression, mixed depression is more frequently associated with a worse outcome and a poor response to treatment. The goal of the Bridge to mix study was to estimate the frequency of mixed states in patients diagnosed with major depressive episode according to conceptually different definitions. The study also sought to compare their clinical validity. This multinational study, sponsored by Sanofi aventis enrolled 2,811 adult patients who were experiencing a major depressive episode. Data were collected on sociodemographic variables, current and past psychiatric symptoms, and clinical variables that are widely recognized by the literature as risk factors for bipolar disorder. The frequency of mixed states was determined by applying both DSM-5 criteria and previously described research-based diagnostic criteria. Depressive mixed state, defined as the presence of three or more manic or hypomanic features, was present in around one-third of patients experiencing a major depressive episode. The authors found that the valid symptom, illness course, and family history criteria that were assessed identified four times more depressed patients as having mixed states. These criteria also yielded statistically more robust associations with several illness characteristics of bipolar disorder than did DSM-5 criteria. The researchers conclude that the DSM-5 mixed features specifier, based on excluding overlapping mood criteria, such as psychomotor agitation, irritability, and mood lability, may leave many patients with mixed depression undiagnosed and, perhaps, inadequately treated. Several epidemiological studies have found that lithium in drinking water may be associated with lower rates of suicide mortality at the population level, but this potential association has yet to be confirmed. To bring more light to this issue, the authors of this article designed a study to investigate a population living on an island of Japan. The study was supported in part by the Japanese Society for the Promotion of Science. The authors examined 274 mean lithium levels in drinking water in relation to suicide-standardized mortality ratios in a population living in Kushu Island, Japan. The lithium levels were examined in men and women and in the total population. Two adjustment models were made for eight potential factors associated with suicide. Study results show that lithium levels in drinking water were significantly and inversely associated with male suicide standardized mortality ratios. However, in the second adjustment model, this association was not significant for the total or for the female populations. The authors conclude that lithium in drinking water may be associated with a low risk of male but not female suicide in the general population. However, further studies are required to confirm these findings and investigate gender differences. African Americans face many barriers to mental health care in the United States. Mental health conditions such as depression and ADHD can affect patients' occupational and social functioning if they remained undiagnosed and untreated. Clinicians must understand how past abuses of African Americans by the psychiatric field and other disparities may influence current barriers to care. Healthcare care providers must be alert for symptoms of mental health disorders in their adult patients and guard against biases that could affect diagnosis or treatment practices. In this commentary, learn how you can target barriers to care and increase your cultural competence to improve the mental health care of your patients. Research results are often presented in the form of derived statistics, such as the number needed to treat, or NNT, and the number needed to harm, or NNH. However, these statistics are not always well understood by the reader. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade provides a non-technical, non-mathematical discussion on what these statistics represent how they are calculated, and how to interpret them. Visit us online at Psychiatrist.com to read this column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the March issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.